This is the Language Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, John Fotheringham. In today's show, I interview Susanna Zarewski, a self-proclaimed language geek, a speaker of seven languages, and the author of Language is Music, over 100 fun and easy tips to learn foreign languages. She has been featured on CBS, BBC Radio, CNN, NBC, Univision, and now, thanks to me, the world's most famous podcast, Language Mastery. In our interview, we discuss the weaknesses of traditional language education, the power of music and language acquisition, and the importance of developing a resonance for one's target language and culture. Enjoy the show. So may I ask, what is your purpose of this this podcast? Um, I mean, besides, of course, you know, you want to help people learn languages and, and do it on their own. Um, do you eventually, you know, want to make money from this side? Or I'm just curious. So, you know, what I, a lot of things. I, I mean, my main reason, <laughs> my my secret ulterior motive is that I get to meet interesting people and have conversations like this with folks. Yay, good. Yay, that I otherwise probably would never get around to meeting or have no good context to, you know, start up a yeah. a dialogue. So, um, that's I think the main reason, other mm-hmm. than helping people learn. Uh, I do hope to uh, earn a living through this somehow, yeah. someday. Um, my master Japanese book has, um, it's sold better than I expected, but yeah. it's still not to the point where I can pay bills consistently with it. So, Unless you move to like Bangladesh? I, I tried that. <laughs> Actually, I lived in Bangladesh for six months. I don't know if that was something you oh, knew when you were joking about I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I worked in Bangladesh for six months. Uh, I was working... I, I wore worn a lot of hats in my career, and I was mm-hmm. in the telecom industry for, um, well, all said and done, about five years. Yeah. And uh, I worked for a startup uh, wireless company there. Mm-hmm. Um, they had hired an outsourced management company, and I was part of the team. And well, there you go. Um, now that was, uh, I will describe that as an interesting experience. I, I, I think. Well, I, I saw in your book you mentioned about your experience in uh, um, was I, I forget the what's the current name of the place, but at the time Bosnia, it was, it was Bosnia, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is it still called Bosnia? Bosnia Herzegovina. That's right. I knew there was another half attached to it. Yeah, yeah. Except it's so long that I'm just I just called Bosnia. Yeah, okay. I, I didn't want to show my geographical ignorance, but I guess it came <laughs> out anyway. Um, I know Asia well, but <laughs> yeah, there's that whole Europe thing I haven't quite tapped yet it's interesting because it's so often that americans start in europe and then go that, that but in your case it was uh brazil first right and then yeah well brazil as a child i was 12 that was my first foreign experience and my first experience uh not understanding what anyone was saying yeah um and uh and then I, I did go to actually i was i went to france in high school for a, mm-hmm. just a two-week exchange thing but um never lived there it's pretty amazing to look at your list of languages and countries. It's, it's inspirational, to say the least. Oh, good. I'm glad. So for those that don't know your languages or what you've done, could you maybe share a bit about the languages you've learned and where you've lived? So I was born in the former Soviet Union. I was born in Leningrad in Russia. So actually, all of my official documents state that I was born in a country and a city that don't exist anymore. So it's kind of funny to, to introduce myself that way, but that's, that's how it is. So I, I often, if I say I was born in Leningrad, people correct me say, well, you know, isn't it St. Petersburg? Right. Well, I say it is now, but it wasn't when I was born. But if I say I was born in St. Petersburg, people often tell me, but you're too old to have been born in St. Petersburg. <laughs> you must have been born in Leningrad. So either way I, I introduce myself, I often get corrected. So technically, that's where I was born, and I came to the United States at the age of three. So my first language is Russian. Now, I mean, I am a native speaker of Russian, but in the United States, I'm called a heritage speaker because uh, heritage speakers are those who speak a language other than English at home, but don't necessarily know the correct grammar for the language. So people like me may have a native accent or almost native accent but make mistakes in the language because mm. we haven't had formal education or very limited formal education in the language. So I, you know, I can read and I can write in Russian. My uh, writing in Russian is is not stellar. Um, it, it leaves a lot to be desired. 
and I can read. I just don't read very fast. It's much easier for me to read in uh, Latin-based languages than for me to read in Russian because I don't have much practice reading in Russian. Mm. And then uh, I learned French. I started learning French at the age of 11, and I was a foreign exchange student in France for only two months at the age of 15. And Whereabouts in France? I was in a town called Pornichet, which is by La Bolle, um, near Nantes in Saint-Nazaire. It's in the, um, on the Atlantic coast mm. in, uh, in Brittany. And uh, that's where I actually developed quite a, a love for uh, crepe and um, uh, what, what's the word? I forgot the other word in French for the, um, the savory crepes. I forgot the word for it. Um, Either way, but, it sounds delicious. Yes, yes. People yeah, should, we're, we're recording this during lunchtime. Before lunch, I, I assume for both of us. <laughs> yes, just, yeah, getting yeah. hungry. Yeah, I, I am getting hungry. Um, so that's I was there when I was uh, fifteen, and I lived in a French family just for two months, and I came back, and I was fluent in French, and I went to school there. Actually, I was in school six days a week because we had half a day on Wednesday and half a day on Saturday, and I was actually put a year back, um, according to the French school system because it was considered that since I went to American schools, which, you know, are not very advanced, that I wouldn't be able to uh, <laughs> withstand a rigorous French education. So I was put a year back, which was actually fine because, you know, I didn't speak fluent French when I got there. So hmm. that was okay. And it was funny because I was, I was in the equivalent of the ninth grade in France, which would have been um, the troisième, so ninth grade in American school and troisième in French school. And I was put in a French class for sixth graders, or for them it's a CZM, and for me it was sixth grade. So here I was with kids who were like three or four years younger than me, and I was learning French grammar along with them. And it was pretty funny because sometimes I knew the grammar better than they did because I knew it as a foreign language. Right. And of course, I'd been tested on it in the U.S. And for them, it was just like for us for English, you exactly. know. We, we, we don't know the, the, the structure of our language. You don't but, know the why. You know the what, yeah. not the why. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So um, in France, uh, students have to learn two foreign languages. So English was, of course, um, mandatory and then another language. So I chose Spanish because I, I had heard some Spanish growing up in California, but I didn't speak any. So I took some Spanish classes there. And then when I came back to the U.S. in my last year of high school, I was 16, and I, I took a year of intensive Spanish, and I was fluent. Um, but, you know, to be honest, having grown up in California, I heard a lot of Spanish, you know, on the radio, listening to music or, you know, being outside, even at the flea market, because my parents didn't have very much money. So we would often buy our fruits and our vegetables at the flea market, where we were sometimes the only white people walking around because everybody else was Mexican or, or Vietnamese. So I got very used to the sounds of Spanish and Vietnamese from a very young age. I don't speak Vietnamese, but um, I think if I were to learn Vietnamese, I might have an easier time than somebody who hadn't been exposed to it at a young age. So Spanish came pretty easily. You know, I um, the grammar, I, I just basically figured out what the differences were between French and Spanish. And I, I learned Spanish and uh, my accent was great. I think partially because I'd been listening to Spanish music even before I had formally studied Spanish. And then in college, I took some Spanish literature classes, and then I decided to learn Italian because I just liked the way it sounded. I actually never thought Italian would be of any professional use to me because it's not spoken very widely in the world compared right. to you know languages like German and, and, and Chinese. So I took Italian for fun, and I was in like a beginning Italian class and I was bored out of my mind because it was for people who had no background in any romance languages. So I made an agreement with the instructor that I would only come once a week. It was it met every day at eight o'clock in the morning and I'm not a morning person. So uh, I made an agreement that I would only come on Fridays to take the quizzes and the tests. And I didn't come to class because I just studied the grammar on my own. And I was living at the International House, which was a dormitory of 600 people, half of whom were foreigners, and there are many Italians. So I just practiced my Italian with um, Italian students. Now, was that intentional or accidental that you happened to live there? No, it was intentional. Um, yeah. I definitely wanted to be in an international environment, you know, so I could practice my languages and, you know, learn from people from different countries. That's smart. Because I always had a proclivity to, um, to international people, and I found that as I was growing up, 
most of my friends were also children of immigrants mm. or Americans who had lived abroad. I mean, very few of my friends are Americans who have never lived abroad or who are not of some other ethnic ancestry because I just have more of a resonance with people who are interested in other countries and who have had the experience of being a foreigner and have had the experience of, you know, sounding like Tarzan in another country right. when they're learning the language. It's so it's so it's such a fundamental difference, I think, in outlook. And I, yeah. I, when I see, you know, problems here domestically in the United States of, you know, racial issues or ethnic things. And it just, it seems like it'd be such a simple solution. I, of course it can never happen, but just to make, make it mandatory that everyone must spend at least six months in college somewhere else. Yeah. And that I, I think it would solve, <laughs> you know, a lot of the problems. It would, it would. I mean, if you think about it during the uh, primary for the Republican uh, presidential campaign here in the United States, and I'm not getting into a political topic, but there were political candidates who were making fun of the fact that one of the candidates whose name is blanking on me right now, the, the governor of Utah, or former governor of Utah, that he spoke fluent Taiwanese and fluent Chinese. Mm. And they're making fun of him for that. And I thought, I'm Ridiculous. proud. Right. Yeah. That, that, you know, he has this foreign experience and yeah. he's, he was the ambassador to, to China, right? And, right. About, and he had lived in Taiwan and he was a missionary um, in, in Taiwan. And the fact that we would make fun of somebody for having this foreign experience, I think is just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. It's archaic in many ways. Um, well, it's, so, it's borderline racist, I think. I mean, <laughs> yeah, or at least, it at is. least ethnocentric. Yeah, that it is, is ethnocentric. Um, and so that's why I've always had this um, definite magnetism to people from different countries. So when I was in college, that that's what helped me improve my Spanish, keep up my French. Because when I was in college, I never took any French classes. But I, I was in a French circle, and so I spoke in French, and I obviously learned Italian. And then after college, it, it's funny, John, because I actually seriously do not remember why I took up Portuguese. I don't remember ever having like a strong desire to go to Brazil or, or Mozambique or, or Portugal. But for some reason, one of my friends was taking a class in college called Brazilian Portuguese for Spanish Speakers. And he told me about this book, Comely Sansa, Brazilian Portuguese for Spanish Speakers, by the University of Texas at Austin Press. And I bought the book on Amazon, and I was reading it at night, and it made me fall asleep because I find grammar to be pretty boring. And which is funny because you think about it, I speak seven languages and I'm bored by grammar, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a whole other topic we'll get to, I think, in a little Good. bit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I, I learned a lot of Portuguese by just reading this book at night. But I still, I have yet to finish the book, but I was listening to. Portuguese radio in the car um, from a Portuguese immigrant community where I live. And that's how I learned Portuguese. And then I supplemented with Brazilian music later on. And then I lived in Bosnia. I worked there in 2000, 2001, a few years after the war. And so I learned Bosnian because I was living there. Now, granted, a lot of Bosnian I could understand because it's a, it's a uh, Slavic language. And my mm. first language is a Slavic one as well. How, how similar? I mean... I, I can just understand by analogy, like, let's say, French and Spanish similarity. Mm -hmm. Is it sort of, is it that close or is it is there a bigger gap like between the various Slavic languages that you've seen? You know, that's a good question. There are various Slavic language groups. So Bosnian Serbocration is in the Slavic language, uh, sorry, Southern Slavic language group. I think it's um, with Macedonian and Bulgarian. And then Russian is in the Eastern um, Slavic language group, I believe, and then you know, Czech and Polish might be in another language group. So there is quite a difference between Serbo-Croatian and Russian. I actually think they may be more dissimilar than French and Spanish. Uh, but you know, French and Spanish sound very different, and right. I think I mean, they're mutually unintelligible, of course. But I think yes. you at least yeah. on, on paper can see. Okay, I can see where I can see the cognates. I can see some of the yeah, yeah. some of the similarities. Yeah. Yeah, where I think that in Russian Serbo-Croatian may be grammatically more dissimilar, but they sound more similar than French and Spanish. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So phonetically, they have more of an affinity, but mm -hmm. grammatically less. Okay, interesting. I think so, but you know, I haven't done the nitty-gritty you know research on that. Well, I have no idea. I mean, I've I've gone through Pimsleur Russian, and that's about the extent of my yeah my Slavic exposure. So I don't. But yeah, but I love it. I mean, it's such it's. It's at least for for Russian so far. For me, I just love the feel of it in my mouth. It just has. Really? A, it just feels 
more than any language I've exposed to or practice, it has a, I don't know how to describe it. It's just fun to, to say to me. I don't know why. Well, that's an important part of language learning. And I'm really glad you brought that up is that you have to feel comfortable. You, the language has to feel comfortable in your own skin. And I think that that's, some, that's a huge barrier for people to learn languages. Like I was talking to a friend recently about Portuguese and he's like, I don't like the way I sound in Portuguese. It's like, I feel like I sound like a cartoon character or something. <laughs> and I said, you know what, when I, I had trouble for many years, for a long time, taking myself seriously in Portuguese because I found Brazilian Portuguese to be a very uh, coquettish, seductive language, mm -hmm. which, you know, has a certain purpose. But if you're trying to have a serious conversation about whatever economic development in Brazil, you don't want to be sounding flirtatious. You know, there's a serious tone to it. Right. And it took me a while to get over that barrier. So I think that's great that for you, for Russian, like you said, it sounds great in your mouth. Because if you don't like the way you speak it, then it's going to be really hard for you to learn it. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a very important, but I think underappreciated factor that you that you get to. I, you discuss it in the book as well. Yeah. Um, but the importance of I think also taking on the personality. Uh, and different personalities, as you said, like in your videos in different languages, you know, you mm -hmm. said that you, it's a different you to a certain yes. extent. And I think that's very true, at least in my, I don't speak nearly as many languages as you, but just in the experience I've had with Japanese and with Mandarin, yeah, I am a different guy, I think, mm -hmm. to a large extent, uh, or a different inflection, I guess, of the same kind, yeah. you could say. But yes. It, it's fun. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And that's why I think that's part of the addiction, perhaps, of wanting to learn more languages is you get to be a, you know, have multiple personalities without being committed to an insane asylum. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way of saying it. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's true. And I think that that's something that unfortunately language teachers either don't have the time to or don't know how to impart on their students about how you really do develop a different part of yourself. Mm. I think and, they yeah. try with, you know, the having the get your Spanish name, for example, in Spanish mm -hmm. class. I think that's it. It's a small gesture toward that you know, yeah. that vector, but uh, yeah, I don't I don't know what they could do because I th well I think there's a lot about traditional language education that's fundamentally flawed from the beginning, which perhaps mm -hmm. another thing we could talk about. Um, I think we share some least views on that. Um, yeah, it's very true. I, I I also sometimes think that language teachers of a certain generation or before a certain generation, before those who were able to get have easy access to media from other countries, have simply did not learn their language with media. Mm -hmm. And so they don't know how to use it. And when you, you when you use media in the classroom, whether it's showing movies or, or TV programs or podcasts or uh, having kids play, listen to music, that is a way for them to learn like, wow, you know, that's the way people communicate in this language. They, they use a lot of gestures or they're much more um, emotive or in this language they're not very emotive and so if kids could do that kind of play acting in class they could kind of take on those roles and what I found in my experience with because I've given presentations to language teachers and unfortunately I have experienced a huge amount of um, um, resistance. resistance yeah <laughs> yes resistance um, I don't have a degree in pedagogy I don't have a degree in linguistics hmm. But I have this experience learning languages and I've also taught languages and I've had language teachers, you know, say to me, like, you know, basically, who are you to tell me how to teach languages? I've been doing this for so long. And I'm like, but yeah, but you don't, you haven't listened to music in this language for the last 30 years. The music you're listening to is from, you know, 40 years ago. You're, if it's a, if it's a Spanish student, I like the ballads, by the way, for the 40s and 50s. Believe me, I love those old, you know, romances and romanceros and all that, you know, the old stuff in, in Spanish. But the reality is, is that modern students learning Spanish are listening to Juanes and Shakira and uh, to reggaeton, you know, and to modern music. You have to figure out how to use the modern music right. because otherwise you're going to lose your students. And sometimes when teachers have had tenure, they really are not keen on doing anything new. And I think that could be for any domain. It could be from math, you know, to physics, to, 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 to language learning. And that's why right now I'm not focusing so much on dealing with language teachers, but I actually want to work with the music industry hmm. because the music industry knows what I'm talking about. Because yeah. a lot of the times I've, I've met with people at MTV and they've told me, yeah, that's how I improve my Spanish. Or that's how I met with a lady who was from Indian ancestry. And she said, I learned more. Hindi by watching Bollywood movies than I learned from what my, my parents were trying to teach me with textbooks at home. Right. I'm like, yeah, I can understand that, of course. 
So I've had to change my direction because the logical idea was, yeah, I'm going to talk with language teachers about how to use music and media in the classroom. And that was not very successful, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I've, I've had the similar experience as both learner and teacher as well of trying to, yeah. yeah trying to get more of that in there. It seems some of them, they almost think of it as cheating somehow, <laughs> which is, <laughs> you, know, that, yeah. you know, grammar, studying grammar and, and, you know, doing this very, you know, disciplined esoteric activity is the, is the righteous way to learn a language. And if you're not doing it that way, you're, you're not really learning, you're just playing. And as if that's somehow a bad thing. Um, no, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think that that's such the traditional way of looking at things. And I'm, and I'm sure that people who are innovating math education and science education probably run into the same thing right. where, you know, it's much more fun to watch Bill Nye, the science guy, than, you know, reading about boring experiments in your textbook and, you know, every student reading one paragraph and then, you know, by after 20 minutes, people are asleep. Yeah. Because damn it, that's how they learned and they want to make <laughs> others suffer just as much as they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of it. And it's going to take a new generation of teachers who grew up listening to music and, and, and watching media in other languages to really understand how, how powerful this is. Yep. Well, and, you know, part of the irony is, I don't know if it's actually not irony, it's one of those words I'm trying not to use anymore incorrectly, but mm -hmm. um, one of the interesting facets of it is that you don't even need a classroom now. I mean, if, mm -hmm. you, if you use media... The way we're talking about, if you use, you know, music and podcasts and YouTube, and um, that's a classroom right there. Yeah, and yeah. You, you don't need to shell. I, I do think classrooms have a place, and I do think teachers have a wonderful role to play. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily what it's always been of trying to teach the language. I think that, at least in my own experience, the best thing a teacher could do is inspire, is mm -hmm. to get people excited about that culture so yeah. that they have a context to wrap the language around. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's not going to go away, but, um, no. but it's not necessary. I mean, if you're inspired on your own you, and you, you want to learn, then, then all the tools are there. And I think that's what's so great about having books like languages, music is it, you detail exactly how to do that on your own. Mm -hmm. um, so for, I don't remember what it was. Uh, I got the ebook version. I think it was what fifteen dollars or whatever. I mean, for fifteen dollars, you have access to a language education. Yeah, actually, the ebook is even cheaper. It's three dollars. Three dollars. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. It's even, yeah. It's a three dollars. Yeah. <laughs> three bucks. You can, you know, you have everything you need basically. So. Yeah. Um, it's very true, and in you know, language classes do serve a purpose. And I'll give an example. Right now, I've taken it upon myself to learn a language. It has various different names, Ladino, Judeo-Espanol, Judeo-Spanish, Spanolite. It's the language of the Sephardic Jews who were expelled from Spain during the Inquisition and who settled in Northern Africa. Um, some went to uh, Holland and uh, many were in the Ottoman Empire because the Sultan Bayezid II invited the Sephardic Jews into his empire. And it's, it's amazing because it's been ever more than 500 years since the Inquisition, and this language is still alive. Granted, it's spoken by fewer than 100,000 people in the world, many of whom reside in Turkey and Israel, but it's still there. And so it's, if, you, if you speak modern Spanish, you can understand, uh, I call it Ladino, some people prefer to call it Judeo-Spanol or Judeo-Spanish. I mean, it's, it, you can understand it, but there are words that are more common, that they use that are more common now in uh, modern Italian or Portuguese, or some of them, are, uh, some of them are medieval words which are not used in, in modern Spanish at all. And I don't have a class for it. It's only it's only taught at like three universities across the United States, none of which are located in Silicon Valley where I live. I got a book off of um, Amazon, and it came with a CD. And I've just been listening to the CD. I've been actually reading the book at the gym. I mean, I'm such a language geek. I'm probably the only person at the gym, like sitting there with a grammar book. But it's like, you know, that's where I'm learning it. And I don't have anybody to practice with. I've been looking. I haven't found anyone yet. And I have been um, listening to and watching videos on YouTube. There aren't that many, but there are interviews of 
Ladino speakers explaining, you know, where they came from, whether it was they were, they were born in Jerusalem, if they were born in Salonika in Greece, and, you know, how the community was before World War II. And so I'm listening to these videos, and it's great because I can be doing stuff in the kitchen or, you know, whatever, cleaning the floor or something like that, and I'm listening, and it's an education that I have. Now, granted, I would, it would be great if I had a class that would be explaining, okay, what are the differences between modern Spanish and Judeo-Spanish? And so it'd be much faster than what I'm learning right now, which is kind of starting from zero. But the fact is I have, there is no such class. And so I have to find the resources that are available and make the best, make and do the best with them. Hmm. And that happens. I mean, if you're living in, uh, um, let's say a not such a big town in Pakistan and you want to learn Japanese, most likely you're not going to find a Japanese teacher. Right. And, but, but you might find a, but you can find resources on the, in English on the internet of how to learn Japanese. Now, whether there's an Urdu book explaining Japanese, I don't know. It probably is. But. Probably is, but you know, you may not be able to find it, maybe right. whatever it is. So you deal with what you, what you can with, with, with what you have and you can still learn. And I think that the more of us who give these examples on the internet or wherever we um, promote our, ourselves, the more other people are going to be inspired and say, you know what? Yeah, I don't have the $500 for a class, but that doesn't matter. I can still learn on my own. Exactly. No, I think it's such a democratizing technology that we have mm -hmm. now that anyone, anywhere, I mean, if you have access to the internet and granted having your own access at home or your own devices makes it easier, but mm -hmm. you can always go to a library. You can always, you know, go to a cafe. There's always a way. Yeah. Yeah, for and, sure. Uh, I think it's wonderful. No, I, I, <laughs> part of me wants to go back in time and, and, or, Go go into the future and then start over and learn languages now because I just think, <laughs> my God, I mean, I, I I still remember carrying around my. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I'm not that old, but mm -hmm. when I learned Japanese, I had um, a kanji dictionary that weighed about 15 pounds. <laughs> carried in my backpack every day, um, you know, textbooks, the you know, all the normal stuff. But then I look at the stuff now. I mean, a lot of stuff I I found as I was grading my book. Um, I didn't have when I started and I, I sure wish I would have. Yeah. I mean, I remember, gosh, now this makes me sound, you know, very old, but I think you and I are around the same age. I remember going to the library when I was in middle school or high school. So, you know, in, in the um, early nineties looking for French music, mm -hmm. I got records, records mm -hmm. of Yves Montand and it was like from 1980. Well, he died in 81. So it must've been from the seventies, I think his music records and I still you know right. I had a record player that's what I listened to and I live in a very multicultural area so it's probably easier where I live to find movies and and, and, and um, music and other languages for free at the library because we have you know huge resources given that there are many people in the community who speak different languages but I can imagine that if you're not in a metropolitan area it much might be much harder but now with the internet I mean you can just watch so many movies online and and you know, maybe they're illegal, but you know, you can still find them. Right. There, there's fortunately now there's, there's more and more options to, you can be ethical if you so desire. Yes. But, but yeah, the point yeah. is it's there. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's out there. Um, no, it's phenomenal. I mean, just, yeah, the change from, for example, yeah, like records to then cassettes and then cassettes to CDs and then CDs now to, to digital files. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just the fact you can carry a lifetime of audio and video input in your pocket and have Japanese or whatever language you're learning in your pocket anywhere, anytime. It, it just, it blows my mind. Yeah. It, it's incredible. You know, I'll give an example and this is a dire example that I hope nobody ever has to go through, but it, it serves as an inspiration, especially for people who have a bunch of ex bunches of excuses about not learning languages. So I worked in Bosnia after the war, the war ended in 96 and I met several Bosnians who, when they had electricity, which of course was not constant during the war, it's four years of the war, they listened to the BBC, learned English, some got Voice of America, you know, if they had a shortwave radio, they could get Voice of America. And sometimes they got, believe it or not, Brazilian soap operas or Spanish, soap, Spanish language soap operas, whether they were from Spain or Mexico or Venezuela or Colombia. And some people learned Spanish and Portuguese to these soap operas. Hmm. Now, yeah, this is not the traditional way to learn Spanish and Portuguese, but they did. They also had, you know, 
for lack of a better way of saying it, they had nothing better to do because it was the war, so they had to be inside. Yeah. So whatever whatever media they could get, they did. So some learned Arabic, some learned Turkish, you know, whatever was was available. And, you know, if somebody can, in a war situation, learn a language under an extreme amount of duress and very and very few resources for obvious reasons, then when people tell me, oh, I, I don't have $2,000 to go to Costa Rica and pay for Spanish class. I just want to smack them on the head and say, <laughs> are you kidding me? And this happened to me. I was at an event in Mountain View, which is where Google is located. And it was an event through Singularity University, which is a university at NASA. And every summer, people come for 10 weeks to learn about new technologies and how to make life world-changing uh, technologies. And I was speaking to someone who worked at the university, and he said, you know, I, I really want to learn Spanish. Um, you know, I hope to go to Central America or Mexico and take an intensive class. And he's like, I need to go to a Spanish-speaking country. And I said, you live in a Spanish-speaking country. <laughs> yes. You're in California. How much more Spanish-speaking do you want? Right. I mean, okay, we're not on the border with, with San Diego, but I was like, I just got my wine like three minutes ago at the little <laughs> bar. What language was I speaking? Spanish. And I wasn't just talking about the wine. You know, I was chit-chatting with the barman. And I'm like, you, you, in a five-minute drive in your car, if you have one, you can go to Mi Pueblo, which is this um, supermarket. And believe me, when I go there, I never speak in English. Everything's in Spanish. And I'm like, there are so many places where you can go right here in Mountain View, California, and you don't have to speak a word of English. Everything's going to be in Spanish. Right. So don't give me this excuse. But I hear it over and over again. And, it, and I'm like, what? Do you guys have money burning a hole in your pocket that you, you just <laughs> – have to spend it i'm like you are well it's I, california so they think that money's the you know default solution usually for things so well i don't know i mean this is like a young college graduate maybe he had a lot of money i don't know but like you didn't you don't need it and it's the same thing for for chinese i mean everywhere i go where i live a lot of things are in chinese yeah. i haven't learned chinese but believe me i could learn it if i wanted to in my own backyard yeah, i was pretty surprised um i'm currently living uh kind of uh about 45 minutes east of seattle yeah. Uh, in a very small town. And I went to a restaurant the other day. It was mm -hmm. a Mexican restaurant. And yeah, every single employee there, native Spanish speaker, or at least yeah. bilingual, right here in a town of probably, I don't know, a couple thousand people, mm -hmm. you know. So, and it's, yeah, anywhere. And I found, yeah, Japanese, Chinese, Korean. I mean, there's any, there's no excuse it's there if you want it. And that's even, you're talking about real living native speakers in the flesh, mm -hmm. you know, let alone be able to get stuff online with, you know, language exchanges and Skype chats and whatever else. So yes, I, I, I share your sentiment of wanting to smack people in the head, but I, <laughs> I usually resist. That doesn't usually, uh, doesn't make converts. It just makes, <laughs> makes enemies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably not good for our cause, but. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, so earlier we started to touch on it, and maybe we'll come mm -hmm. back to it now. Um, but your view on the role of grammar studying, learning grammar, it's kind of a contentious issue. People seem to be either you must learn it, you must study it formally, or you'll always speak like a, you know, a foreigner, or completely ignore it, you know, it doesn't matter. So... I imagine you're probably somewhere in the middle. Can you talk yeah. about your, the role of grammar in your experience? Yeah, sure. That, that, that was a good prediction there about my being in the middle. So I'll give an example of how not knowing grammar is, a, is really difficult. So Russian is my first language, as I mentioned before, and I'm a heritage speaker. I did study a little bit of Russian grammar, but not well. So when my parents correct me in Russian, I have no framework to understand uh, how the correction fits into the, uh, the structure of the Russian language. But if somebody corrects me in you know, my other languages, with the exception of Bosnian, because Bosnian I also kind of learned by patching things together, uh, but if someone corrects me in Spanish, Italian, or French, or Portuguese, I understand the grammar. So I can say, oh yeah, okay, so I got that case wrong, or I'm using, I'm putting the preposition in the wrong place, or whatever. So I can easily say, okay, this is it, and this is how I make the correction. That's why you have to know the grammar, because... It's like, are you going to build a house just by putting a bunch of bricks together and being like, well, I think that makes a good column. Okay, I'll just put some mortar and maybe it'll work. That might be fine. You know, maybe you'd be able to have kind of this, this shack that you're going to live in 
And, you know, as long as there isn't an earthquake or a rainstorm or anything like that, your shack may, may, may house you. But if you really want to speak the language well, be able to write in it and use it professionally, you do have to understand the grammar because it does not look professional if you, if you, if, if you're making, uh, if you're speaking incorrectly. And, but I don't say that you have to shove grammar down your throat at the way beginning, because if you start that way, you're most likely going to be bored unless you're, you know, a grammar enthusiast. Right. And, and there are very few of those. Mm-hmm. How they, and I they usually would, end up becoming teachers and then that's the way they <laughs> learned. And so <laughs> they assume everyone should learn that way. Yeah. There you go. I mean, I think in some ways when I look back at the way I learned languages in school, I'm almost amazed that I, I ended up becoming such a language enthusiast myself because it was a very boring way, boring way of learning. You know, I had to memorize a grammar, you know, conjugation charts and memorize vocab lists and, you know, the, the, the same boring stuff everybody has to do. What I recommend is getting a feel for the language, like what you mentioned before about how you like the way Russian sounds in your mouth and how you eat. You like the way you feel when you speak in Russian. You have to develop a resonance with the language. And when I say resonance, there are two ways of speaking about resonance. Resonance on a physical level where you feel you feel well, you feel good when you're speaking in the language. The other was is an emotional one. You have to develop some sort of affinity for the language. Now, some languages may sound more pleasing to the ear than others. Uh, but some may have an intellectual interest for you or cultural interest or maybe you're in love with somebody from the country, whatever it happens to be, or you're a big fan of Japanese anime, whatever it happens to be that emotionally pulls you to the language, that's super important because that emotional tie that you have to language is going to get you through the hurdles of the boring grammar parts and, and understanding, you know, these weird exceptions and understanding linguistic frameworks that don't exist in your language. You have to kind of wrap your head around something new. Without that enthusiasm, it is going to be a major chore. Unless, of course, you're one of these linguistic grammar enthusiasts, of which I think there are very few in this world. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one of them. So I actually, it's funny, people sometimes call me a linguist. And I have never studied linguistics. I tried reading a book by Noam Chomsky and I fell asleep. <laughs> I found his political stuff much more interesting to read yes. than, than his linguistic stuff. So, you know, if people want to talk to me about linguistic theory, uh, you know, I'm the wrong person to talk to because I, I have nothing to add. I mean, I can talk about the differences between different languages, but, you know, that's about it. Okay, you're a comparative so, linguist. You can maybe you can <laughs> I don't that, know. that moniker to yourself. Um, but, well, having studied uh, linguistics, I can tell you that just like yeah. most fields, there those that actually are linguists, uh, very few of them actually speak foreign languages. Really? Worth a damn. Yeah. I knew very, very few actual, you know, cognitive linguists or linguistic researchers or even comparative linguists or even applied linguists. There are very few that actually, at least in, in, in my, you know, in my mind of what it means to be fluent, I, I found very few. So they're much more interested in the structures mm-hmm. of languages. Okay. Well, yeah, they can talk about the problems. They can, uh, mm-hmm. they can analyze and, and dissect. And, and it's fascinating stuff. But, I mean, as somebody who did study linguistics, I can say that it has very little to do, I think, with actually understanding or using a language. Mm-hmm. So. Well, there you go. So I'm definitely not in that camp of, of people. Um, because for me, language is about communicating and exactly. you know, being able to, to move around the world. So, you know, I'll explain this way. So the way I learned Portuguese was not the traditional way. Like I said, you know, I read this grammar book, but it made me fall asleep at night. I primarily learned by listening to Portuguese immigrant radio and by listening to Brazilian songs. And so I basically figured out, okay, what are the differences between Spanish and Portuguese? And then that, that's how I got to speak. And, you know, I learned new words, obviously. Now I am actually going back and figuring out the grammatical structures of the language so that I can advance because, you know, at a certain point I I plateaued in my Portuguese Hmm. where I could understand practically everything. But, you know, I I realized that there were things I needed to improve on in my spoken Portuguese because I didn't know the grammar. And I do want to be able to work in Brazil. So if I want to work professionally in Brazil and be on Brazilian TV helping people learn English, I have to be speaking practically, you know, hopefully pristine Portuguese. So there is a role for grammar, but music can help people learn grammar. And this is where I sometimes really baffle uh, language teachers. 
because they're like, well, yeah, I can, I get it. You know, you can listen to a song, you learn new words, you learn pronunciation, but I don't get the grammar thing. Look, of course you can learn grammar because if you're listening to a lyrical song in, let's say Spanish, right. And you're trying to learn, um, the subjunctive tense of which we have very little in English mm -hmm. by listening to Spanish music, a lot of it will be in the subjunctive because you're talking about subjunctive about doubt or you're not sure that something's going to happen. Mm. Well, most songs are about love, right? I mean, so a lot of times people are talking about, well, I don't know if this person loves me. I don't know if this will happen. And so they're going to be using that tense that denotes doubt. Or if you're learning of the different ways to form the future tense, well, you're going to hear it in the song. People are going to say, you know, I will go there with you. We will go there together. So you hear the conjugations of verbs. And so I think that what teachers need to do much more of is find songs that, of course, are not probably 100 years old, modern songs that don't have, of course, profane language, right. and have the verb tenses that the students are learning and have the kids learn the songs. Oh, it works great. Yeah. yeah, it does. I mean, I was teaching Spanish two years ago, and I actually had the eighth grade kids who were in their second year of Spanish, and they had they knew very little Spanish. I had them do a karaoke contest, and I had them pick any Spanish language music they wanted. I, of course, had to approve it because, unfortunately, a lot of the stuff on Spanish language radio is not appropriate for uh, preteens or teenagers, given the sexual content of the songs. Right. And so I proved the songs and they had to act out the songs. They had to explain to the students what the songs were about. They had to, uh, you know, sing along and they had to give like a vocab lesson. And they talked about, you know, present tense, you know, future tense, past tense, whatever was there. And that's how the kids memorize stuff. And I know for me, actually, even I'll be speaking in Spanish or some language and I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of a word and I can't remember it. And it'll come to me from a song. So I'll be like in the middle of a sentence and I'll remember the song. So it's like my brain is accessing that song. I remember the verse and, and I usually don't start singing in the middle of a song. I mean, I'm not like a musical <laughs> or on Broadway, but that's how I activate the vocabulary. But it also works with grammar. And once you have, like I said, that affinity for the language, you find music you like or you find the Korean soap opera that you like to watch. And then you're learning grammar, you're going to find those grammatical rules represented in what you're listening and what you're watching. And that's going to make it stick. And that, unfortunately, is missing from our traditional language education. Among many other things. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Like yes. fun, enjoyment. Yeah. You know, efficacy, you know, little things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, it's absolutely, I completely agree. Um, and I used that when I was teaching English before. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember... I was trying to teach the uh, future perfect tense, um, and I found uh, bare naked ladies. If I had a million dollars, perfect. It goes on. If I had, if I had, I would, I would, you know. Uh huh. And they got it. They got it. They never and had a problem sing? with it ever again. Yeah, they would sing. They. Uh, I, I didn't do a karaoke contest. So that would have been a good mm -hmm. idea. <laughs> steal that and go back in time. Well, especially in Japan. I mean, that's karaoke capital. Oh yeah. Well, most of the I only taught the first year I was in Japan, but um, most of my teaching was in Taiwan, actually. Oh well, they love it too. They do, but their karaoke is not as good as Japan. I have to say, <laughs> no offense to any Taiwanese listeners, but <laughs> deal with what you can, right? That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so the next topic I wanted to go into then was formal education a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Then, so um, you've already talked about your efforts to try to help you know, introduce things like, uh, music and, and media into the classroom. But, mm -hmm. um, if there are any teachers listening to this, I don't know if there are, but if there are, uh, what are some ideas you have maybe about how to do that more effectively, how to bring in actual authentic content and real media into the classroom? So what I did when I was, was teaching Spanish, and this was for kids who had zero Spanish. I mean, they were in seventh grade, so they were like 11 or 12 years old. I found little clips from BBC in Spanish or Univision in Spanish. Univision is a Spanish language uh, TV and radio conglomerate in the United States, and they own many TV and radio stations. I'd find little clips, like two or three minute little things, and I'd play them. And of course, they had no subtitles. And the kids were like, what? We don't speak Spanish. You're going to make us watch the news in Spanish. Are you kidding? And 
I even had another teacher who had been teaching French and Spanish for like 30 years. And she said, why are you, why are you showing Spanish TV clips to these kids? They don't speak Spanish. And they said, just because they don't speak Spanish doesn't mean they're stupid. They can pick stuff up. So the kids were shocked. I mean, I showed them, this was two, two years ago. We had a salmonella outbreak in the United States with eggs and where I lived, a lot of the grocery stores, you know, stopped selling eggs because they came from certain factories or sorry, um, farms around the country. So the clip showed people outside of a Safeway grocery store in San Jose uh, talking about the eggs that they can no longer eat. They showed somebody frying eggs in a, in a restaurant. And then they had a map showing where the farms were in the Midwest from where these tainted eggs had come from and how they traveled, you know, what were the network links that got them to different grocery stores in, in, in California and what were the brand names of the eggs. I mean, there were enough, there was enough visual stuff there that the kids understood. And plus they'd already heard about the salmonella outbreak because their parents probably stopped buying eggs. Right. Right. So I showed it. And after like two or three minutes, I asked the kids, so what happened? And they basically said everything that was in the report. And they explained it to me in English, of course, because they had no vocabulary in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, so what were the words you learned? And because the, the word for egg, huevo, was, was said over and over again and showing, you know, the fried eggs, the tainted eggs, they figured out, oh, huevo means egg. Right. So I wrote that on the board. Salmonella. Well, salmonella, you know, it's the same in both languages. Supermercado. They're like, super mercado well that must be supermarket and showing the supermarket so they figured out those words and and i said look you can understand this and they were they're like wow we can actually watch the news in spanish and then it was the time when the chilean miners you know got stuck however many meters below below the earth and so i showed them also something from spanish news or two or three minutes long and they explained it to me because it was obvious they were showing you know the the, whatever they're 500 meters under the ground and they showed like the special contraption that was made to take them out and the kids understood it and so what I did is I made them do homework where they had to watch Spanish news or listen to Spanish radio and I had to write down the words that they learned and I would just occasionally you know show these little video clips or um, I had them like I said do the karaoke contest or one time I brought in a song a couple songs one was Fruta Fresca by Carlos Vives the other one was El Cantante by Hector Lavoe. And I had the kids listen to the song. And um, then they, I, you know, I wrote out the lyrics, but I took some words out and they had to write in what the words were. So they had to learn, listen to the song at home, learn the song. And the kids, like, I would play the song as they came in. So as they were walking in, they were just like singing along. Fruta Fresca or whatever, or El Cantante. So it became fun for them. And... I encouraged parents to watch Spanish TV with their with their kids, especially the news. And I think the news, even though you know teenagers might not be too interested in, in what's going on in the world, the news is actually one of the best ways because there's so many visual aspects right. that you know even if you don't know the word for fire, I mean they're going to show the fire like ten times. You're going to figure out the word for fire. And as you and, said, you know most of the news stories are going to be the same. Yeah, they've already heard in English, so they already know the context, mm -hmm. right? Exactly, exactly. And there's, there's something about um, raising the confidence of the learner, which is super important. Because here I was speaking to Spanish, Spanish language students who had no, most of them had no Spanish at all. And they probably thought, okay, I'm going to learn the days of the week and then the months, you know, the, all the typical stuff you first learn and the colors and the numbers. And I brought them in real content. And so then they could go home and watch the news or even if it was Dora the Explorer or whatever Sesame Street in Spanish with their parents and, and impress their parents and say, yeah, I understood. This is what happened. And that is super important because Jeez. once, yeah, they're like, oh, I can, I can, I can understand this. And it's pretty simple. You know, the teacher can just find little clips on the internet and play it. You know, um, if they have internet in the classroom, if not, then maybe they have to download a video and, and show it. Or, um, you know, find some educational videos that the kids can watch. Yeah. It seems that it's that confidence in, or at least the the expectation that I can learn given mm -hmm. enough time and effort. Um, yeah. It seems to me that's the, really the, the 
distinction between those that learn and don't. Um, and especially uh, having talked to you know polyglots like you, um, that seems to be a recurring theme mm-hmm. of what what made the difference for them is they just mm-hmm. they believe they could do it. You know, they start yeah. they set off. I'm going to learn this language and I'm, I'm going to do it. Um, and that actually kind of leads into the next question I have, which is, um, you talk about how annoying it is when people, you know, just assume, oh, you just you're just good at languages. Mm-hmm. You just have a gift for it. You're just a natural. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've encountered a similar thing, and as of almost everyone I know who's learned a language, they just they get the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think we both agree that it's not just a natural gift. Of course, you have your natural gifts that probably help you in learning a language. You mm-hmm. you had your your enhanced hearing, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think for me, I could I can do impersonations pretty well, and so if that I helps. hear something, I can imitate it. Mm-hmm. But obviously, that's not going to get you there. So. What is it do you think that really made the difference for you? What is it that made you a success at so many languages when so many others fail? It is the confidence, but I didn't have that confidence from the beginning. I mean, I obviously have an advantage over others because I grew up bilingual and Russian is my first language. And so like rolling the R's in Spanish and Portuguese and, and you know, in Italian was no problem for me because the Russian R, you, you roll it as well. Um, but I know other people who grew up bilingual and who have trouble with third and fourth languages. So it's not just like, oh, if you were born bilingual or you grew up bilingual, rather, that you have this automatic advantage over everybody else. I think it is the confidence, but I didn't have that confidence going in. I mean, I was okay with French, you know, when I was 11 and 12 years old. I wasn't the best French student by any stretch of the imagination. I've, by the way, I'm not a straight A student. People must think like, oh, she's, always had straight A's. No, 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 no. Not at all. Uh, but when I was in France after two months, you know, I came back and I spoke fluent French and I had no accent and I had French speakers in the United States tell me, wow, you speak French like a native. Like what happened? And I, I didn't understand. I didn't know. I really did not know that it was about the way I listened and that, it were, and that music played such a huge role. And so that's when I realized, okay, I'm good at this. And so I can keep doing it. So I think that for me, it wasn't like, what I put it, it's not like I, 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 yeah, I didn't know why I was good at languages, but I knew that I was able to do something that other people didn't. And so it helped me, you know, with languages. But I think it's not, it isn't about talent. It, it is about dedication. But I think a lot, most people don't listen well, even in their own language. I mean, I'm sure if we had a marriage therapist talking here, marriage therapists would probably tell you, the reason people don't get along is they don't listen to each other. The other person is arguing with them, and the person is just thinking about their rebuttal. They're not listening to what, what their their wife or their husband is telling them. And that's the problem. People don't listen. And if you don't listen in your own language, you're never going to learn another language well because most of it is about listening, whether it's listening for the inflection in tone or whether it's listening for new words, whether it's listening to whether the person's happy or sad or angry or whatever, if you don't know how to listen, forget it. It's not going to happen. And I have always, I think because I have like a pretty observant, I like to observe, I'm very perceptive. I have a natural tendency to to listen well and to pick up on uh, nonverbal cues sometimes as well. So it's not just about listening, it's about just being observant. Right, which probably helps you in the early stage before you can actually mm-hmm. understand what someone's saying. You can at least get a rough idea of what, you know, oh, this person's angry or they're yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's part of it. You know, I'll give an example. I was in Taiwan four years ago and it was with, um, uh, well, two Americans, one Russian and one Taiwanese lady, but she didn't speak much Taiwanese. She was from Taipei, so she was primarily a Mandarin speaker. Right. She only knew a little bit of Taiwanese. And I really wanted to buy these cherry tomatoes. And you've lived in Taiwan, so you probably know that they have these beautiful cherry tomatoes. They're, like, just luscious with flavor. And they're usually and, desserts. I mean, they, yeah. they dip them in sugar and stuff. And they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just wanted to buy myself a bag of these cherry tomatoes. It was my first day in, in, um, in Taiwan. And so I was with this Taiwanese lady, and I asked, you know, can you help me? I don't want to buy this whole bag. Maybe it was, like, two kilos or something. Can you ask the vendor if I could have half? And I... And I spoke, I mean, I still don't speak any Taiwanese. I think I may have known two words of Mandarin at that point. 
And I saw that the, the vendor was pointing at me because I'm a bit bigger than most, uh, you know, Taiwanese women. <laughs> and she said, I could understand. She said, oh, this, she's a big girl. You know, she can eat the whole bag of tomatoes. <laughs> and so I, I, I spoke to my Taiwanese friend. I said, oh, so she just said that, you know, I should be able to eat the whole bag. And my Taiwanese friend's like, how did you understand that you don't speak Taiwanese? Right. I'm like, well, I just figured it out from the context. Like I speak human. Yeah. <laughs> I speak I'm hungry. Yeah. Fluent and hungry. You know, and I've been in enough markets in the world where I've had to, you know, use my hands and, you know, pieces of paper to communicate or, you know, whatever, where I haven't had a mutual language where I have figured out how to not necessarily bargain, but somehow to communicate with the vendor. So that's the openness that a lot of people don't have. And when they don't have that openness to listening and observing, they're also not open to changing who they are when they're speaking in another language. And that's what goes back to what you and I initially spoke about, how you like the feel of Russian in your mouth. Well, if you don't like the feel of, you know, making guttural sounds, if you're speaking in Arabic or those clicking sounds in African languages or whatever, rolling your R's or making the nasal sounds in Portuguese and Russian, if you don't feel open to moving your body in a different way, being a different person, then that is a surefire way to fail at language learning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if you're not interested in the culture, I mean, we were talking yeah. about that already too, but I think it's kind of the same thing. It's if you're not open to being a member of that culture and if you don't want to be a part of it, it's, I, I think it's kind of a non-starter. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I think that might go the same for people who don't, uh, adapt well, you know, learning, uh, being in a different country. I mean, even if they're going from Australia to the United States or England to South Africa or other English, Anglophone countries, they could have the same type of issues, but obviously not on this, not to the same extent of going into a country with a different language. It might even be worse because I don't expect to have that problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Like I, you know, I, I believe that if, let's say if I moved to Australia, I would probably still speak with a primarily American accent. I mean, some of my vocabulary might change for mm. obvious reasons, but I would probably still speak like an American just because, you know, I've been speaking like this for over three decades. So right. Well, decades. and you'll, you'll be understood. So it's not, yeah. it's not a necessity to, well, for the most part, you'll be understood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I've probably taken a little bit too much of your time already here, but I just have yeah. one or two other questions for you. Sure. Sure. Um, and probably... Let, let us get off to lunch here because we've, we've talked about food so much. I'm yeah. the growlers are going now. Um, so in, in your book, you have 70 language learning tips. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to give away too much because I want to help people go buy your book. Thank um, you. But if you had to pick one, just one of the tips that you thought is the most important or the most fundamental, what do you think it would be? Learning to listen to language like music and um, something that I, I discuss in the book, which you and I haven't discussed yet, is that why I talk about music so much is that music activates more parts of your brain than language does. That's why if you learn something to a melody, like whether it's the ABC song or, you know, schoolhouse rock or anything that comes to a melody, you're more likely to remember it, remember it recall it later on in life than if you just remember something that you learned in spoken or language or, or in text. So that's why lyrical music is so important for you to pick up, like I said, grammar and pronunciation vocabulary in your new language. But also when you're learning a new language, you just, you have to turn off your brain at some point and like try not to analyze, try not to figure out what people are saying and just listen to the language, listen to it go up and down, you figure out, is that person angry? Is that person sad? Is that person happy? Are they rattling off a list of numbers? Uh, are they, uh, what are they, you know, just, are, are, are they excited about it? And just listen to how the language goes up and down. And that is super important because you're more likely to be able to pronounce the language well if you've had, if you just listen to it first, because that's how we learn, you know, when we're children, we listen. And there's a, uh, a man in New Zealand, as we're speaking about New Zealand before, Paul Salzberger. He did his PhD in linguistics, and he did research on how people learned Russian. And he had one group who was exposed to listening to Russian and one group that had no exposure to listening to Russian. And what he showed in his research is that the group who had prior exposure to Russian had a better time learning Russian and making out one word from another um, when they were actually in a Russian language classroom. 
And what he showed through his research is that even if you don't understand the language when you just first listen to it, when you then go into the classroom and you learn, okay, this is the word for I, this is chair, this is sit, you're more likely to recall which, you know, where the words cut off and, you know, what they mean and, and how to pronounce them. And so I talk about it as listening to language like music. Where does it go up? Where does it go down? And like, I look at my nephew when he, he's now eight, but a few years ago before he was really speaking Russian, he would like take a Russian book and pretend he was reading and just make Russian sounds. And it really <laughs> sounded like it was Russian, but it was just nothing. It was just. Right. And that's how he was learning. And I think that as adults, we're too resistant to make fools out of ourselves. Which is why Which babies you... win. I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They don't and care. <laughs> they, don't... they don't care. They don't care. And this goes back to what you and I were talking about before about just letting yourself be and just being aware. Right. And making sounds of the language, even if it doesn't make any sense, because you're getting your mouth to move in that direction. Exactly. And that's how you would that's how you make music. You play around. So it is about listening to language like music. So that's it. That's great. Yes. No, I think, and that's a, also an often, I think, underappreciated component of learning the language is just getting mm -hmm. your mouth around it and, you know, being, the babies go through what's called the babbling phase, right? Well, that's how they, you know, they don't just figure out, you know, like a native English speaker. They didn't start practicing English once they start speaking words. They'd already, yeah. their, their ears were getting used to it for two years, then their mouth for six months. And then finally they say, da da mama, you know, mm -hmm, that was mm -hmm. a two and a half year process. <laughs> Whereas we can do it in a month. So, yeah. you know, a lot of people say babies are better at adult uh, than adults at language. And I actually think uh, it's not necessarily the case. They tend to be just because mm -hmm. I think again, of the, all the psychological uh, things that hold most adults back. I think that's one of the main disadvantages we have is our, our brains actually hold us back a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our egos. Yeah. That's the right word actually. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I think that was in your book. You leave, leave your Lego behind. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that's definitely in there. And, you know, I have to remember that too. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm, you know, I'm speaking cause I I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to make mistakes, but you know, I'll speak anyway. Right. It's tough. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go, you take an adult who can say exactly what they want to say, exactly what they're thinking, and then suddenly thrust them in a situation where they can't say anything. Mm -hmm. It's it's a tough uh, thing to go through. But I think uh, kind of going back to the beginning, that also might be why it's such a powerful and important experience too. Mm -hmm. um, not just being a foreigner, not just being a minority or an outsider, but also having to go through um, – that experience of not being able to communicate, mm -hmm. I think is a pretty powerful thing. It's sort of a, uh, you know, it maybe it does reset your ego a bit. It resets your ego, but it also gives you more compassion to other language learners and it gives you compassion to, towards yourself. Yep. That forgive yourself for making mistakes and, and just keep on going. Yeah. So uh, I, are there any other languages that you plan to learn in the future or are you, well, I know you said you want to go to, to Brazil and, um, and you already speak Portuguese, but are there other, yeah. other countries you want to visit and other languages you want to tackle? Well, right now I'm working on Ladino, which, you know, some people say it's not another language, it's a dialect of Spanish, but it does have some significant differences from modern Spanish. And so I'm in the process of learning it. But this process started, uh, I think, like last Tuesday or last Wednesday. So it's not even one week old. And eventually I think I might want to learn Arabic. I did start Arabic about nine years ago. And this was before I realized the power of music. And the Arabic CDs actually broke my CD player because I had to keep rewinding to get the ch and the, all the guttural <laughs> sounds. And we used no music. If I had been learning the, the difficult guttural sounds in Arabic to an Arabic song, I probably would not have broken my CD player. But if I had, I wouldn't have been so angry because I would have then you know, at least learned a song. Except what I got was I just got a broken CD player. And then knowing what I know, I think I'd be much more effective at learning Arabic than how I was nine years ago. Well, I hope uh, you get the chance. So and, do I. And Japanese and Chinese, hopefully, if it's ever on the, on the list. You know, I have this intellectual interest in Chinese, but I don't have the motivation to learn it, and nor do I have the affinity for the sound of the language. 
So I prefer to be in awe of the language, especially I love looking at the written characters, especially the old, old written characters. I find them to be very artistic. Um, but I, I don't, I'll be honest, I just, I don't have the motivation or the interest to learn the language. Which is, I think, where it all starts, so. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, that's very true. That's, I think that's uh, something I've talked to a lot of my former students about or, you know, when people ask me about learning a language and then when I ask them why, you know, what is your motivation? And then, you know, a lot of times it's it's economic. It's I want to get a job or I want to, you know, pad my resume or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I uh, if I'm being honest with them, I usually tell them that I, I it's going to be a tough road ahead then because that's those kind of external motivators I don't think are enough. No. They don't usually keep you going. No, no, like you no. said, you have to have that love—the love for the sound of the language, the love for the, the culture, or being in love with somebody from the that language. It, it helps. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you it find can. Your it can help. Yeah, but then if you break up with that person, you better have some other uh, motiva- motivating factor. Yeah, well, that's kind of my situation now. Actually, um, um, called I, I was engaged actually to a, a Taiwanese woman, and I called things off. It didn't work out, so. Oh. I'll have to find something else to keep my Mandarin progressing, I think. Oh. oh well. I think that, one, that once you figure it out, it might actually make for a very interesting uh, blog post. Ah, that's a good, that's a good idea. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I I'm getting to that point now where I'm like, what am I going to write about? <laughs> I just got to, you know, I mean, I, I don't actually, I don't blog nearly as often as I should. I, I've been pretty bad about that. But that's often the thing is, you know, not only have I kind of said a lot of things I already want to say, but I, I don't like writing a post that someone else in this space has already written about. Mm-hmm. Cause that seems like I'm just copying or regurgitating. So yeah, but that's a good one. Yeah. I, you know, on Twitter, I am often, this is, I, I often um, just retweet what other people have written other articles because I'm like, well, right. Hey, they've already written it. Exactly. And I'm just going to, and that's, I think that that's a wonderful way of, of what Twitter offers you is that, you have an audience, but it doesn't mean you need to be talking personally to that audience all the time. Exactly. You don't have to always say what you had for lunch. No, people don't care. No, 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 no. I, I, I rather quality over quantity. Yep, absolutely. Well, that's what I've. That's my excuse. <laughs> not that I can guarantee I've written quality either, but there's not much quantity, so I guess that's all I have. <laughs> yeah, but I hope to change that. I, I, I really, I want to start being more regular, more frequent about it and with podcasts as well. So I've um, got a couple folks lined up. So, and I really appreciate you giving so much of your time today to help uh, expand the podcast. So, all right. Well, thank you again for finding me and um, thank I you for being found. To- yeah. All right. Thank you. And have a good lunch. You as well. So nice okay. talking to you, Susanna. Nice talking to you too. Okay. Bye. Take care. For more tips, tools, and tech about learning any foreign language, go to languagemastery.com. And if you enjoyed this show, please consider rating the podcast in iTunes. Talk to you next time.